So last week we were right at the very end of chapter 14, which is also taking us to the very last moment in history. And uh, just to remind you, the way that the book of Revelation is, is put together, it's like taking one subject and putting it in the middle of a room, right? And then walking around that subject and describing it from different angles, okay? Always keep that in mind when you're reading the book of Revelation. So when you're reading Revelation, the, the subject matter that's in the middle of the table is, is what it's the, it's the how, how is God going to bring all of this to an end, right? I always say Jesus Christ is really the focus of the book of Revelation, his role as, as we look at the, the end times. And uh, so the, 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 the scope, the history that's being covered began with the birth of Jesus Christ. And it will conclude with his return. And what's happening is we're walking around that, looking at it, and we're going to walk around it seven different times and look at it from different standpoint each of the seven times. Well, chapter 14 is bringing us to the end of one of those glances at how God is going to act in this last period of history. And so you have, beginning with verse 14, what the harvest of the earth. And uh, last week we talked a little bit about this. So I'll go through it quickly. I looked, I behold a white cloud. This is verse 14, uh, chapter 14, 14. Seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. We talked about how Jesus, when he was uh, speaking to his, his disciples, said, this is what will happen in the last day. You'll see me come uh, as the son of man uh, riding on a cloud. The crown is on his head. Notice what's in his hand is the sharp sickle, Okay. Um, interestingly, earlier on in the Revelation, we saw someone else with a sickle. Remember the four horsemen that are riding. And one of those horsemen is named Death. And he has a sickle in his hand. And in popular literature, movies, etc., uh, we, we always call Death the Grim Reaper, right? Here I come. So in, in a sense... Early on in Revelation, you have that sense of death as, oop, here comes the reaper. Um, the disciples asked Jesus a question one time about this reaping that is supposed to happen. And uh, what they knew is, we talk about the grim reaper coming to us as individuals. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Here comes the reaper. But the actual reaping of the earth doesn't happen until when? Till the very end, when we experience judgment day. And so one day the disciples asked Jesus about that. They said, why don't you remove, remove the bad people from earth? Okay. I mean, you're God. You can do whatever you want. Uh, God, right now, if, if you wanted to, you could just look down on planet earth and say, see all those ISIS people? Bam, done, removed from earth. Why don't you do that? And uh, remember Jesus told a parable of the, the wheat and the tares. He says, well, as long as you're alive, until that day I come, there, there will be the wheat, those who belong to me, and the tares. But I'm not going to sickle them down. I'm not going to uproot them until that last day. I'm not going to just take them off the earth. Uh, on the last day, that separation will take place. And so, so here, instead of death being one of the, the four riders, you, you literally have a picture of, of Jesus now has the sickle in his hand. And it's signifying it's time for me to bring all things to an end. And interestingly, one of the things that will face death at the return of Jesus 
is death. Death will die. There'll be no more death after him. He will sickle death itself. And so you have this picture of him with the crown on the uh, the crown uh, on his head. I am the king, the one who has the authority to judge. And here he comes and swings his sickle so that the earth is reaped. Uh, verse 17 says this, this angel in this moment comes out of the temple who also has a sharp sickle, another angel uh, who has authority over the fire, over, over the fire of hell. And he called with a loud voice, put your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Interestingly, as this, cha as this chapter ends, then you have this sickle coming across the earth, the grapes of the harvest being uh, gathered together. And then look at verse number 19. It says that the grape harvest of the earth is thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Okay? So I'm just going to stop there for a minute because we're, we're, as we begin chapter 15, we're going to pick up this word wrath again. God is a God of love. How do people in our world see God today? God is a God of love. We, we live in a culture that doesn't like to hear about the wrath of God, right? Um, the Greek word for it is the, the, the thumos. It's like um, we take thermostat, thermostat right? Uh, actually comes out of that same root word. So a thermostat, you turn up the heat, you turn down the heat. I like to think of God's wrath as being thermostatic. In other words, what is God doing with his wrath right now? He is controlling it, right? If God wanted to, he could look upon the earth and he could say what? All of mankind needs to go away. Does he do that? No. Why not? Well, because through Jesus Christ, how does God see you? God is a God of love in and through Jesus Christ. Is he also a God of wrath? Yes, he is, right? Now, our culture, again, doesn't like to hear that. We like to say, well, no, when everybody dies, we're all, all going to go to heaven and, you know, because God is, is loving and kind and gracious and merciful. I'm like, no, all of this time, during this end time, the wrath of God is being thumu, thermostatically controlled. God says, I will bring out my wrath upon the earth on this last day, the day of judgment. Uh, interesting, as we get into chapter 15, we begin to see some of that wrath start to be poured out in measure upon the earth. So there's days we say, well, God, where's your justice? Look at these horrible people, all the bad that's happening. Why don't you do something about it? God says, thermostatic, in my time. The sickle comes at just that time that I've chosen it, right? And in the meantime, I thermostatically control my wrath. I pour it out upon the world in, in a measured way. And so God isn't just sitting up in heaven saying, oh, yeah, look at that, another school shooting, whoops. Oh, look at that, there's another, you know, another uh, attack. Nope, God, God feels all of that. And his wrath predominantly is against the evil one, Satan. His beasts, those who work in and for him. And then upon sin itself, and so here, here is this last angel who says that day comes at the very end when the, the harvest has taken place. The grapes, the clusters, those who belong to Jesus Christ are gathered together. And the wine is thrown into the wine press. And then look what it says in verse number 20. It says, the wine press is trodden 
outside the city. Kind of interesting, when Jesus died, he died outside the city. That's where he poured out his blood. And uh, to be outside of the city is meant to say something. It's meant to say, well, we, you, you no longer are a part of this community. You do not belong in it. Uh, Jesus already acknowledged that when he was alive. My kingdom is not of this world. And so appropriately, when he died, they took him out of the city to Golgotha. Now here, here what's happening is the, the wine press of God's wrath is being prepared outside of the city. He's saying, for those who are outside of the city of God, for those who do not belong to me, you now receive the full measure of my wrath. That's expressed symbolically in the very last verse. With these words, the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay? So the, the, the thought of it is 1,600. If you look at it and try to look at it, just tear it apart from a symbolic standpoint, you have 4 times 4, 16. Okay? 4, remember, is representative of the earth. You have the quote-unquote, the four corners of the earth. So we're saying four times four, the whole earth, right? Times ten, ten is what? God's number, God's holy number, Yahweh's number. Ten times ten, right? So God's perfect will is being carried out throughout the entirety of the earth. That is what's being pointed to in that symbol, that the blood rises to the bridle of the horse, 1,600 stadia. In other words, what's being said is God's wrath is righteously, perfectly poured out upon the earth. Those who are now outside of the city of God are, are facing the, his, his wrath in its entirety. And thus, the, uh, this last picture, chapter 14's picture of the end of the world, uh, concludes. Today we're going to jump into chapter 15, and um, uh, we're jumping into, if you will, the next cycle. All right, chapter 14 closes out uh, one cycle. Chapter 15 begins the next cycle, and what I'm going to point out to you as we go through this is um, it's progressive. Things are progressively, be, it's, it, what we're saying is as the end time draws closer, things get worse and worse and worse uh, upon the earth. Um, then I saw another sign in heaven. Okay, So that just kind of signals to you that we're entering into that next cycle of time. Then I saw another sign in heaven. So almost God, God gives John these clues, these clues. Okay, John, you just saw the end of the world. Now I'm going to show it to you again. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing. Okay, So when John is experiencing this, you know, always remember, it's not, like, it's not like he's just sitting there kind of going, oh, I don't know. I mean, the, what, what happens is the, the, these pictures that John has shown um, cause him to just back up and try to absorb the fullness of what God is saying to him. I'm seeing this signpost that is pointing me to something that is beyond my comprehension. Great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, now notice this, which 
are the last. Which are the last? For with them the wrath of God is finished. So kind of see what's happening here. Chapter 14, you're at the very end of the world. Okay? Now we're going to start again, and I'm going to show you. Let's walk around this subject of the end times one more time. And what I'm going to show you is the very last days on earth. Okay? So put it in perspective. When God tells time, we've kind of gone through this before, he, he says there was a time, right? What was that? Old Testament era. There is a time. What's that? New Testament era. That's the era of time that began with the birth of Jesus Christ. I, I believe that's what time it is now. If somebody asks me, what time is it? I'd say, it's, it's a time. They'd be like, well, yeah, it's a time, but what time is it? It's a time. That's what time it is. Thank God it's not what? The next thing on his watch is what? A half a time. Okay? The half a time represents that moment in history where things change, where you begin to experience the very last days on planet Earth. When that time comes, no, no man knows when that begins, now you begin to see the very last plagues poured out upon the earth, and what these plagues represent are the fullness of God's wrath now being shown. They're showing themselves upon the earth. And so what chapter 15 is taking us to is that half a time, is to that very last period on planet Earth where the wrath of God will be uh, finished. So let's take a look at the sign. What does he see? Verse 2 says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Not new to us. All right, we've seen this before. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 6, when John got one of his first glances into heaven, one of the things that he saw was that there was a, a sea of glass. Okay? Part of that, I believe, is meant to say that, that God and his hosts right, can look down, can see all that's happening on earth. Right? So, so you ask the question, does God really see what's going on? Well, absolutely, the wholeness of it. Uh, when we looked at that back in chapter 4, we made the distinction that, that the souls of men, all right, so when I die um, and, and join those souls that are currently in heaven, the souls of men are, are caught up in what? In, in doing what God is doing, calling for the end. Remember, we have the, the altar scene where the martyrs are under the altar and they're crying out, what? How long, oh God, how long? Now, my contention is that um, you don't have uh, visible accessibility to seeing what's going on on planet Earth as a soul in heaven. God does. Angels do, right? Spirits do. Why? Because they're of the spirit. We become souls in heaven. We're not looking down on Earth going, <gasps> Look what my kid just did. You know, we're not. Um, we're caught up in simply recognizing that the end is near and calling for it uh, to come. So you have this sea of glass representing the fact that I, got, I God, am in control over all that's going on on planet Earth. Mingled with fire, it says. Well, if you go back to chapter 4, 
what you'll see is you, you have these thrones, right? Seven thrones that have in front of them these um, candelabras filled with fire, representative of uh, the Holy Spirit, okay? So seven is always Jesus' number. Remember when Jesus ascends to heaven, what does he say? I'm now going to send you the parakletos. We call him the Holy Spirit. The one who will live within you and give you direction to the very end of time. I must go that he may come. I sometimes think about this when we're, when we're using colloquialisms in the church. Sometimes I always think, well, we should just be careful how we, how we speak. Um, we'll sometimes say when we baptize a kiddo or we're talking to Sunday school kids, remember Jesus lives in your heart. Mm, no. Jesus is present with us. Where two or more gathered in prayer, there I should be present. Jesus is present in all of his promises. Who is it that actually lives within you? Parakletos, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives inside of you. All three are persons of one God, right? But when I'm speaking, I usually like to say, remember the Spirit of God comes within you today. We've got a baptism this morning. And I think about that with, with Presley, who will be baptized, that we have the promise of God very, made very real. We have the presence of God who, who, through faith, which he creates, comes into Presley and says, I will live with you, I will guide you to the very end. So that fire that we're seeing here, uh, sevenfold, is what Jesus' sending of the Holy Spirit into the world to give direction to those who belong to him and to do what? To, to call to Jesus those who are outside of the faith today. That's their purpose, okay? So even in this last time, that half a time, when God's wrath is being poured out, the intention of the Holy Spirit is to do what? Is to give you and I confidence in the promises of God, hold on to you during what will be a very difficult time. But equally... The Spirit of God is seeking to bring to faith those who are outside of faith. That's his purpose. That's the purpose of, of wrath. Okay? Now, he not only sees this glass mingled with fire, but he says, I also saw those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with, glass with harps uh, in their hands. I saw those who had um, conquered it's going to do this this morning. One of my favorite images of, um, of Scripture from, from St. Paul is this idea of what it means to, to, be, to be and to live as a conqueror. Uh, sometimes you don't feel like you're much of a conqueror, right? Um, but what, what Paul does with this word conqueror, which is uh, from the verb, verb uh, nikos, which... Uh, if you have ever worn Nike tennis shoes or Nike swoosh stuff, that's where the word comes from. It just means victory. You are a victor, right? So Paul gives us, I think, one of the most beautiful pictures of this in the book of Romans. I'm going to have you flip over there for a minute. Fits, fits beautifully for today. Romans chapter 8, beginning verse 37. So here in Revelation, he says, I'm seeing now, standing beside this sea of fire, all right? 
those who had conquered. So Romans chapter 8. And let's just go ahead and begin at verse 37. Okay. Well, let's, in fact, let's begin at verse 31. Um, I've got a purpose for that. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to share those words with you because I, I just, it just, um, you know, it's Christmas time. And it kind of takes me back to, um, you know, something that I want to see our, our congregation continue to do more and more of is get out into this community. And I, I just kind of picture myself getting ready for what we used to call uh, Christmas in the park. And we did this here this year. We had Christmas at both of the trailer parks that we serve. Um, when we were living in Dallas, we literally went out to this park and we would kind of put on an activity play with all the little kids that would come. They'd come and we'd say, you're an angel. And you're a shepherd. You know, and you're a sheep. <laughs> and we'd give them things. And the kids, the kids would, oh, okay. We'd say, you stand here and you stand here and you stand here. And, and it was just a lot of fun. You would see all these parents with their cameras filming their kids. They had no idea that morning when they woke up they'd be in a nativity scene. And you're speaking the gospel out into the world. And what I can remember is standing um, out trying to direct people into the park. And uh, one, I remember one kid just walking down the sidewalk with his head down. And, I, and me, I'm like, hey, what are you doing today? And he looks up. And I said, have you, have you seen a nativity play yet? No. I said, well, there's one in the park and we're, we're cooking some food. Come on out and join us. And off he, off he walked. I thought, well. Probably won't see him again. About an hour and a half later, I did see him again because some of the folks that were serving came and got me and said, you really need to talk to this kid. And I walked over to him and I went, thank you for coming. What's going on? And he just poured out his story. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm only here this weekend. Um, I'm with my aunt that I'm staying with. I live in Omaha, and I want to kill myself. 
And I thought, you know, why did God send us out into a park on a cold day to do a nativity scene for this kid? And I said, what's happening? And he just kind of went through his life, what was going on in his life. And you know what? I don't, I don't have any friends. I got fired from my last job. My parents are just, mis they, don't, they don't care about me. I'm just going to kill myself. And I said, well, I want you to do something for me. I want you just to hold this in your hand. I handed him a Bible. And I turned it to this verse right here, Romans chapter 8. And I said, I want you to read this right here. And I can, I can almost hear his voice just reading these, these lines out loud. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And I said, do you know Jesus Christ loves you? Shall tribulation. I said, you're going through a hard time? You're not alone. You live on planet Earth. How about distress? You're distressed? I can see that. Does it separate you from the love of Jesus Christ? No, it does not. Persecution? You feel like your friends persecute you? They persecuted Jesus. And they'll persecute his followers. Does that separate you? No, it does not. How about nakedness? Not having anything. You're poor. You lost your job. Can that separate you from the love of Jesus Christ? And as he started to read those words, tears just came down his eyes. And I said to him, before you do anything to yourself, would you allow me to, to just pray with you? And will you say to me, will you promise me you're not going to hurt yourself? And he got down on his knees and we prayed a prayer. And we got back up and he said, I believe this Jesus Christ. And he is with me. And I said, I'm not going to tell you that your life is just going to change automatically tomorrow. You're not, it's not like you're not going to have problems. You will. But listen, nothing, nothing in this entire world can separate you from the love that Jesus Christ has for you. And I, I really believe that we're living in a world where so many people are wrestling, struggling with what's going on in their lives. And what we have to bring to people is this sense that you cannot be separated. There's nothing that you've done in your life. There's nothing that you can do in your life that will separate you from the love of Jesus. He loves you, right? And when you hear the wrath of God, we think, good God, go get them, smack them. No. Thermostat. God controls his wrath. Why? Because of the love of Jesus Christ. I want to bring people to myself. Does it mean he's not wrathful? No, he is. Angry at what Satan is doing. Angry at sin. But desiring to bring people to know him. Flip all the way back over to Revelation. This is what John is seeing. He says, I looked, I see the glass sea. I see the fire, the spirit of God. Right? And then I see those who are conquerors. That's exactly what Paul said. We are more than conquerors through the love of God of Jesus Christ and they're standing there beside the sea with harps, harps of God in their hands. They're getting ready to sing. Now what they sing is, is interesting both from the standpoint of the words themselves but also their historical context. Notice what they sing. It says, verse 3, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and Kind of couple that together, and the song of the Lamb, okay? So historically, two things are being put together here. 
right? The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, right? Um, go back and think about the song of Moses. W what is the song of Moses? What is that thing? All right, so um, if you picture in your mind that moment after which the Israelites go across the, the Red Sea and are standing now in Canaan, on, on promised land, and they watch the complete destruction, right, of the Egyptian army, and they break out in song, and Moses leads that song, and um, what he sings isn't a song that he wrote that night while he's holding up his staff. He didn't like, hey, you know, I've got this staff up here. I think I'll write a song. No. How does he know this song? Well, God puts it in him, right? So it's what we would just call an inspired song. It's a really a song of God through Moses for the people of Israel at that moment when they cross over, okay? Now, song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. One of the beautiful things that frees, finally frees um, uh, God's people from Egypt involves a lamb. It's the last plague. What did the angels come out of the, that came out with what? Holding the last plagues, right? What was the last plague that was served by God upon Egypt? Death. death. Yes, death. The death of the firstborn son. What did God say to the people of Israel? I want you to take a lamb and I want you to kill it and take its blood and mark your doorposts with it that the angel of death might pass over you, right? Put the two things together. What did that lamb and its blood point to? Already in the time of Moses points to who? To Jesus Christ. He will be the sacrificial lamb whose blood is spilled out through whom you become conquerors, right? So what's happening is God's saying at this time in history, in Moses' time, I'm going to show you how utterly and completely I will defeat my enemy, right? And I defeat him through the blood of the lamb, through the cross, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so while in the time of Moses you have just the song of Moses, here you have the conqueror singing the song of Moses and the song of of the lamb, the two are being combined. If you look over in, in, in Exodus chapter uh, 14, 15, you'll, start, you'll see this song. Just flip over there with me real quick. Exodus 14, 15. I'm going to take you to chapter 14, beginning of verse 19, because I want you to see something that we're going to pick up here in just a minute. We all remember the scene because you can picture... I mean, we've watched it like a thousand times um, with Charleston Heston doing his, his deal. Sometimes what I, what I always think of is you can't capture fully um, in that television show the whole of what God is doing as he rescues Israel from Egypt. Go to verse 19. It says, The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Remember when, <clears throat> when Israel goes to the wilderness, 
there are, are angels that go before him. One appears as what? A cloud, pillar of cloud. Okay? They could never quite capture this in the, in the movies, right? This, this, this thing that is the mysterious presence of God, this cloud. The other is what? A pillar of light, a fire. Okay? This, is, this is why, by the way, Israel's enemy, right? The folks in Canaan, as they could see, the, as they could see Israel approaching, um, you've never seen anything like it. Normally, when an enemy is approaching you, you look out and you assess their strength, right? You would say, okay, we're in our little fortress. We're in Jericho in our fortress here. We got our binoculars. We're looking out there. Here comes this army. What is their strength? What are their numbers? What kind of weapons do they have? What do we need to do to take them out? When Israel came into Canaan, the people got their binoculars out and they looked and they said, there's a bunch of them. But look at them. There's men and women and children. Highly vulnerable, right? This is going to be an easy group to pick off because you don't go fighting a war with men and women and children. What are those? They're foolish. They got kids with them. Now, what are their weapons? Assess their weapons. They got nothing. They don't even have no swords. They don't have spears. They don't have like, like catapults. They got nothing. Ooh, what's that? I haven't seen one of those before. What, what is that? There's like this big thing of fire that's like in front of them. Don't touch that, right? <laughs> what's that? What's that? Uh, there's a big pillar of cloud behind them. We've never seen an enemy like this. Well, as Israel comes into Canaan, no one stands a chance against them, right? Why? Because the angel of God is there. And they're just thoroughly defeated to the point where, right, we just celebrated this at Christmas time. You know, one, one of the enemies there says, we, we'd better find someone who can help us defeat this enemy. Remember this, we, we kind of put this, talk about the story of Balaam and the talking donkey. Remember who Balaam was? He's the guy that they, they called 1-800-GIVE-US-A-PROPHET. They sent Balaam. He says, okay, we're going to pay you a truckload of money. I mean a truckload of money. You can retire tomorrow, but you've got to put a curse on Israel. And remember what Balaam did. He stands up and he says, and out of his mouth doesn't come a curse. What a blessing of God. I can see him. I can see him, but he's not near. He's talking about Jesus. And uh, remember, it's through that prophecy of Balaam ultimately, that what we call the three wise men, the three magi, find out about Jesus and end up in Bethlehem, right? So you see all of this. What I want you to picture is, here's these angels, and what happens when the, the, the crossing takes place is this cloud blinds the entire army of Egypt. They're in total darkness. They're enshrouded in it. On the other side is what? The pillar of light. It's like broad, broad daylight where the people of, of, of Israel are going across that dry land. Okay, so just kind of get that, that picture in your mind. Flip over to chapter 15. When they get into the promised land, notice verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. All right? And again, this is, a, this is what I call an inspired song of God through his people. And the words of it are, I will sing to the Lord, 
for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Okay? Now, question for you. When, when do you hear that song sung annually by Jews? Each year it's sung by Jews. When? At the Passover. Connect the dots. Song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, right? The Jews are singing a song that they, that's, that's got Jesus right in front of them. Um, and, you know, when, when you listen to the Passover music, the horse and rider cast into the sea, um, you, you sing it with vigor because it, it's, it's meant to be a song to say this is how God conquers our enemy. And the thing that just hits me is to see here's this, here, here are the Jews, the, those co the covenantal people of God who have Jesus right in front of them in their songs, in the Passover and all of it, and they can't see him. They cannot see him. And I think how many people in our world are in that spot where Jesus is right in front of them and they cannot see him. This is the song of Moses and the song of the land, Lamb. Go back over and look at the words in the Revelation. It's not exactly the same song that Moses sang. Why? Because it's the song of Moses and the Lamb. Does it contain some of the same meaning? Yes, it does. Here's the way the song reads. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Remember what? What we heard Moses' song say, the, the Lord is a man of war. He is a mighty God. Just and true are your ways. Okay? When will justice happen? There's a time and a time and a half a time. The justice of God begins to, to take place already in that half a time. Just and true are your ways. Your justice is not the justice of the world. O kings of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who, who would not do this? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The Song of Moses, the reason that you're hearing the Song of Moses being sung by the conquerors is they're in heaven. And what they're pointing to is they're saying, just like God thoroughly smashed his enemy, Egypt, God is getting ready to just thoroughly smash his enemies. Luther, in his day, remember, taught that there are three great enemies in our world today. They are the world, the cosmos, right? That which is under the control of the dragon, the, the beasts. Our flesh, our own flesh that deceives us. And death, the devil, okay? And so what he's saying is the enemies of God, um, the, the cosmos, this created world in its broken state, smashed, obliterated, okay? Our flesh, all flesh that stands opposed to God, obliterated, right? Obliterated. And the enemy of God, Satan, obliterated. This is why they're singing this song, is to say God is getting ready to crush his enemy, and with our harps, 
we play this song as we look upon what is going on. Your righteous acts are being revealed. Verse number five, go back to that. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Okay? A lot of the imagery here in chapter 15 is, is uh, wilderness imagery. It's, it's the imagery of Moses' time. So in Moses' time, the tent of witness was what? It was the tent that was meant to signify the presence of God in the midst of Israel during those 40 days or 40 years that they're wandering through the desert. Is God with you in the wilderness times of your life? You know, Pastor Mike's message today, beautiful message, really beautiful message. Is God with you in your wilderness times? Yes, he is. He's present. So now out of this tent of witness come these seven angels and notice what they're carrying with them now, plagues. Plagues again kind of back in the time of Moses and, and Egypt. So now the last plagues that will be poured out upon the earth. These angels are clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. It's really meant to signify that they are, they are clothed, right, with the same righteousness that you and I are clothed with, righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are wearing golden sashes to indicate what? That they have the authority now to act on behalf of Jesus. We, the angels, have no authority of our own. We come under the authority of Jesus Christ, who is now authorizing us to pour out these last bowls of plagues upon the earth. Okay? Verse 7 says, One of the four living creatures, remember that's, that's um, a representative of the whole of creation uh, in heaven. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So here now the angels are ready to pour out these plagues uh, upon the earth. Um, these plagues, we'll kind of look at them. Next week, you could, if you take the ten plagues of Egypt and put them beside the seven plagues, uh, you can see some similarity, but they don't match up exactly why, because they're different plagues. What is the purpose of these plagues? What's the purpose of them? Thumas, thermostat. God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth. Yes, he is. Will, it, will we feel the effects of that? Every single person alive in the half a time will feel the effects of the wrath. In one of the plagues cases, only those bearing the mark of the beast will receive the effect of the first plague. Interesting. Okay. It's the first time we'll see that in history. What I want to show you is how cumulative these plagues are. They take us again uh, to the very end. Let's pray.